When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Something unusual happened to Slate senior writer Mark Joseph Stern this week. He found himself actually agreeing with Brett Kavanaugh, the conservative Supreme Court justice. And I cannot tell you how much I dreaded it because I knew it was coming. It happened Monday during oral arguments at the Supreme Court in a case centered on the First Amendment and big tech. I knew that this was going to be one of those handful of cases every term where Brett Kavanaugh was going to come out swinging for the right side. And it was just like the embodiment of the worst person you know just made a great point. The case challenges two laws passed in Florida and Texas that essentially ban social media companies from moderating content. Conservative lawmakers in those states claim moderation violates the First Amendment. So the states believe that social media companies, we're talking Facebook, uh, Twitter slash X, YouTube, Google, Instagram, that they are discriminating against conservatives, uh, conservative voices, and they are deplatforming, shadow banning, deprioritizing conservatives and uh, by extension, allowing progressives to sort of dominate these platforms. And so the states, Florida and Texas, which are controlled by Republicans, they said, we need to step in to protect freedom of speech. And we're going to do that by effectively outlawing content moderation on these websites. But Kavanaugh's point was that the First Amendment is violated when states tell companies what they can and can't post, not the other way around. In your opening remarks, you said the design of the First Amendment is to prevent suppression of speech, end quote. And you left out what I understand to be three key words in the First Amendment uh, or to describe the First Amendment by the government. Do you agree by the government is what the First Amendment is targeting? I, I do agree. With I mean, how big are the stakes in this case? Huge, because these laws really challenge the internet as we know it, and especially social media as it has always existed. Really, the question is, can the government stick its nose into these companies' content moderation policies and force the companies to entirely redo their business model and how they operate and just kind of let any garbage onto their website and let that garbage float to the very top. That's not an internet that I particularly want to use, but that's the internet that these states are, are trying to force down our throats. So today on the show, the Supreme Court holds the future of the internet in its hands. Are they gonna mess this one up? I'm Emily Peck, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about tech, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Music 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This whole case started with conservatives complaining that they were being silenced on social media sites like Facebook and Twitter, back when it was actually called Twitter. So there was a lot of push in this direction on the right before 2020. Um, Then 2020 happens, the election happens, January 6th happens, and the platforms take more aggressive action than they ever have before. Obviously, you know, Twitter and Facebook remove Donald Trump. Uh, They they aggressively start removing a lot of uh, dangerous lies about election fraud, voter fraud, uh, a lot of stuff involving January 6th, the criminal offenses that people were encouraged to participate in that day. And suddenly there was a very clear example of how these social media companies really could change the conversation, sort of define the parameters of acceptable speech. And if you're progressive, then your response to that is probably like, yes, good. Election subversion is bad. Lying about voter fraud is bad. It's good for these companies to actually be proactive about stopping that. But if you're a conservative, then you view that as Orwellian. The very notion that their views were being silenced led conservatives in Florida and Texas to pass sweeping laws banning the platforms from moderating content based on viewpoint or political ideology. Then, a coalition of big tech companies, obviously freaking out that they wouldn't be able to control what gets posted on their sites, quickly filed suit to challenge the laws, and they were blocked from taking effect as they made their way through the legal system. Now those cases, Moody v. NetChoice and NetChoice v. Paxton, are at the Supreme Court. Yeah, so the two laws are very similar. And again, both were enacted like in direct response to this fear of conservative bias and content moderation, which there's been a lot of studies. They don't show a conservative bias. Actually, if you look at who's dominating Facebook, it's like Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire. But these Republican state legislatures and governors, especially Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, were convinced that this bias existed. So they pushed through and signed these bills that are different in some ways, but basically the same in that they tell the biggest social media companies uh, and websites and platforms, you are not allowed to discriminate against certain kinds of speech, which are basically conservative speech. You are not allowed to deprioritize deplatform, shadow ban speech or users um, because of what they are saying. And in Texas, they specifically say because of their viewpoint. In Florida, it's broader. It's more about political speech, but same difference, basically. And if you do anything to curate the speech that we're talking about here, the the user, the victim of your censorship can go to court and file a lawsuit against you and collect damages. And in Florida, those damages run up to $250,000 a day. Uh, the Texas damages aren't as clearly laid out, but could easily reach 
ruinous, ruinous amounts. Can we just say um, that these uh, cases made their way to the Supreme Court via an organization called Net Choice, which is what exactly? So NetChoice is the trade organization that represents the various social media companies and websites um, that are are suing to block these laws, that hate these laws and, and want them to go away. After the states enacted these laws, NetChoice, again, representing these groups that are affected, they went to court. They quite savvily hired a conservative superstar lawyer named Paul Clement, um, kind of a hired gun, uh, and said, we need you to protect our business model because these laws are an existential threat. So if the court does rule in favor of the states, what does the internet wind up looking like? Is it just a free-for-all? Think about the terms that these laws use. They talk about political speech. They talk about viewpoint. Um, Those are legal terms that are extremely broad. Um, Supporting ISIS is a viewpoint. Supporting the KKK and white supremacist violence is a viewpoint. Supporting all kinds of horrible things, posting training videos for terrorists, organizations, uh, endorsing election subversion, you know, attacks on democracy. All of that is political speech. All of that is a viewpoint. And none of it is illegal under like the actual law, not not the website's terms of service, but actual federal law, unless it reaches the point of immediate incitement to violence, which just to simplify it a bit, like it doesn't. That's a super high standard. What the states have done by using these super broad terms about political speech and viewpoint is force the platforms to host pretty much everything. And and so I do think the options for the platforms, should the states prevail, is either shut down in those states, geofence so that Texans and Floridians can't use your platform at all, or just fire all your content moderators, delete all of your algorithms and say, all right, Everything that gets posted, everyone can see. No more curation. You know, if we know you like cat videos, we're not going to send you cat videos anymore. You're going to get ISIS training videos. <laughs> and that's too bad because that's what the law says we have to do. Yeah, that's existential. Then the, those sites don't work anymore. You cannot sell advertising off ISIS training videos. You have to no. you have to get the cat videos in there. You have to. And, and the companies know that. And that's why they're shelling out top dollar to hire the the best lawyers in the game to to try to secure a really really strong victory at the Supreme Court. So what what are the tech companies saying? Um, what's their argument for why these laws are unconstitutional? So the the tech companies say, look, the whole idea here that the states have put forth that they're protecting free speech by regulating us, the companies, that turns the First Amendment on its head. The Constitution talks about freedom of speech. Of course, as Americans, we all know and cherish that. Of course. But it specifically says that the government cannot abridge free expression. It does not say that corporations are prohibited from doing whatever they want with the speech that appears on their platforms. And so the the tech companies say, you know, actually what you're forgetting here you know, Florida and Texas and your allies, is that we ourselves as corporations have free speech rights. 
I mean, there are a lot of cases to that effect, but let's just throw out Citizens United. The Supreme Court has said corporations have the same free speech rights as living, breathing individuals. You know, that is a conservative decision, which creates a, a new kind of layer of irony here. But the, the tech companies in this particular case say, you know, we are people under the law. We have First Amendment rights. And one of those rights, the Supreme Court has said over and over again, is something that's termed editorial discretion. Uh, it's just this idea that if you are in the business of producing or hosting speech, you get to curate that speech as you see fit. And the most obvious example is a newspaper. So the platforms say, look, we know that we aren't newspapers, but for constitutional purposes, we act like newspapers. We are hosting other people's speech, and we want to be able to curate it as we see fit, not the way that the states tell us to. I have some questions with, with that argument from big tech, because in other cases and on previous occasions, big tech has not taken responsibility for the content on their platforms. There, there's a law, basically, that says they're not to be held liable for the content on their platforms. But now they're saying, we can we curate this content like we have editorial discretion over this content like why do they get to have it both ways yeah exactly the laws called Section 230. As you said, the way it operates is it shields these companies from liability for what other people post on them. You know, if I post something defamatory on Facebook, uh, my victim can sue me, but they can't sue Facebook. And you're absolutely right that in those cases, the, the big tech companies say, oh, we're just hosting other people's speech. We're mere repositories for other people's words and ideas. Yeah. We have nothing to do with what they say. And so you shouldn't hold us liable. And then in these cases, they turn around and say, actually, we are engaging in this deep editorial discretion. <laughs> we are you know, so thoughtful about how we craft expression within our online community. And it it is difficult to square those two principles. And this is something that Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Sam Alito hit during oral arguments. And, and I guess I have to say, I don't think there's one super satisfactory answer to that question, which again is a very good one. I guess I would just say it's two different legal principles at play. And the tech companies are arguing that regardless of whether it makes sense as policy, both of those principles shake out in their favor. When we come back, why this case hasn't fallen along typical conservative liberal lines and why a ruling against these laws isn't so simple. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 
Price and coverage match limited by state law. The court heard oral arguments in the case on Monday this week, and the typical ideological vibes were a bit scrambled. Yeah, so Sam Alito, he's a, a big hater of big tech. Uh, I have to say, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't have proof of this. I think he watches Fox News all the time. <laughs> I think he's kind of brain poisoned by it. What he said during oral arguments sounded very much like what you would hear on Fox News. He said that content moderation is just a euphemism for censorship. Uh, He had this extended metaphor where he talked about the mass uh, arrests of political dissidents during World War I in the United States and said, well, would you describe that as content moderation? as though arresting people for opposing war is the same thing as a private company taking down, you know, election lies. Um, and then he went on this tear about how it's Orwellian to use these euphemisms. He used the term euphemism. So did Clarence Thomas. You know, that all of this stuff is just censorship designed to do mind control and that the court needed to stop dancing around what was going on and confront the Orwellian reality of these companies just deciding what people are allowed to see and think. And this was where Brett Kavanaugh jumped in. And he just went ahead and said, like, yo, it's Orwellian when the government's doing it. Like, we believe that there is a very strong divide between the government and the private sector and free enterprise in this country. We believe that the government is subject to a set of restrictions that just don't apply to anybody else because, again, that's how we think a free people should exist and, and govern themselves. Um, I think he asked a good, thought-provoking, important question and used the term Orwellian. Um, When I think of Orwellian, I think of the state, Uh, not the private sector, not private individuals. Um, Maybe people have different conceptions of Orwellian, but... um, And so he had to sort of remind Sam Alito of a principle that you learn on like day three of your first year of law school, which is that the government and corporations, they are very different. So that all took place, Brett Kavanaugh's shining moment for you, all took place Monday at oral arguments. What else stood out to you during the arguments? So, you know, I I think that there was a lot of discontent that these laws were so poorly drafted and the justices spent way more time than I thought trying to figure out what the laws meant. Mm. Um, And Amy Coney Barrett and and Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson both were digging down trying to figure out how these laws work and asked really good questions like, you know, we've been talking about these sort of speech only websites like Twitter's business is speech. What about Etsy? What about Uber? Uh, They sell goods and services. Do these laws apply to them? And if so, how do these laws apply to them? What would it even mean to tell Etsy that it's no longer allowed to engage in content moderation? Doesn't that seem crazy? And like, what's even going on? (laughs) Nobody knows the answer because, again, the laws were rushed through written poorly, not vetted, I think, by any like real lawyers. And so it's a frustrating case where the the justices, I think a majority of them, they believe this basic principle that these laws are a threat to the First Amendment, but they, they don't want to issue a ruling that's so broad without understanding what the consequences will be and what the laws are actually doing. And because the laws have never taken effect, they've been blocked by the courts, We don't know the answer to that. And that led to a lot of impatience and surliness throughout arguments. (laughs) Um, 
And did the justices fall along their their usual conservative liberal lines here? So not quite in the sense that uh, specifically Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, and, and also Justice Neil Gorsuch were all pretty anti-tech here. They, they were all, again, just sort of criticizing content moderation, criticizing these these platforms for how they operate. And, and I guess I, I found that surprising because, you know, these are conservative justices. They are the same justices who have granted corporations all of these rights. And, and it goes beyond even just freedom of speech and Citizens United. There have been all these cases where the court gives corporations a right to free exercise of religion, right? Allows corporations like Hobby Lobby to essentially discriminate against employees because of their religion. But here, all of a sudden, after all of those pro-corporate decisions, these justices come in and think that like corporations have no First Amendment right to editorial discretion. I mean, I respect that argument when antitrust progressives are making it, when progressives who hate corporations, who think that corporations have way too much power, way too many rights, you know, when they come in and they're like, we need to rein in these big tech companies, I get it. I get where they're coming from. It's not a total betrayal of their principles. This is in line with what they're always saying. But for Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch to say that, I mean, that is just a complete departure from everything they have ever said about corporate personhood. And I think it is impossible to square it with their broader jurisprudence. I mean, it's sort of interesting big picture because everyone kind of hates big tech, um, liberals and conservatives, <laughs> but for different reasons. But I mean, for the liberal justices, like what were they thinking on this or where were they going with this? Yeah. So, you know, I think the liberal justices understand that like these are kind of experimental red state big swings that are not really in line with any known constitutional tradition in this country. I think they come in skeptical of the laws themselves, but I agree that the liberals also come in super skeptical of the companies and come in with a, a kind of fear that these companies really are amassing too much power, getting too big, having too much control over the conversation. And so I think some of the most interesting questions came from liberals like Justice Kagan, who, uh, again, like, basically get that free speech on the internet is is in peril here but don't want to give these these companies just a total kind of uh exemption from every law that could ever be passed to regulate them like they don't want to issue a decision that's so broad that say California can't require the companies to disclose how their algorithms work or disclose how their content moderation is conducted. They don't want to create this deregulatory monster that turns the First Amendment into a shield against anything the government ever wants to do to rein in big tech. And striking that balance is going to be very, very difficult in these opinions. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because there's also all this activity going on around inappropriate content about kids and teens and teen girls. And there's all this activity of trying to regulate that. So you could see, you know, letting tech companies have free reign over content moderation can kind of backfire. And then the next thing you know, it's like all this harmful content for kids or something like that. Exactly. And that came up during arguments. And I think it's very much an open question, you know, and if the court decides that the First Amendment extends 
so robustly to social media platforms that the government can't touch them, then I think it would really strangle in the cradle a lot of these good faith efforts by lawmakers to try to make these platforms safer for children, to reduce the exposure to harmful content that children face when they log on Instagram. Um, you know, the, the very first state that tries to impose real restraints on Instagram's ability to throw, you know, uh, say bulimia, anorexia, glorification at preteens, they're going to get dragged into court by these same big tech lawyers who are going to say, well, too bad. We have a First Amendment right to show your daughter horrible content that convinces her she needs to become anorexic. Gah. So, I mean, we talked about how Donald Trump got kicked off of Twitter. That was a different company. Now, Elon Musk bought Twitter. He turned it into X. He got rid of most of the content moderation teams. And there isn't very much content moderation on that platform anymore. Um, but like the whole, he he's turned X kind of into a version of what these laws are kind of seeking, it almost seems like. Um, it's kind of ironic. I agree. I would say I think it's kind of an interesting, like, real-world example of how content moderation does look like editorial discretion in some important ways. Because I think that the experience of Twitter when it was still Twitter was radically different from the experience of X today. You know, on X, you are inundated with a lot of far-right garbage, a lot of porn bots and spam, um, you know, people who talk about white supremacy and are super misogynistic get algorithmically boosted to be at the top of your feed. In the past, when it was still Twitter, those people had their posts suppressed. They might have even been deplatformed. And I think that those differences reflect the choices of the people running these companies. Like, I think that this, this natural experiment has shown that there is something to the idea that editorial discretion and content moderation are two sides of the same coin. Even if one is on a scale of billions of decisions made by algorithms that you program, and the other is on a scale of a single editor choosing what goes into the newspaper and what doesn't, at the end of the day, the product that comes out feels different based on how the person in charge decides to curate that speech. So, okay, so we are in an election year. I don't know if you knew that. Um, <laughs> and there's going to be lots of disinformation and misinformation and crazy postings. Um, so how significant is that, the timing of this case in the midst of this? Yeah, it's everything, I think. Um, and and Professor Rick Hassan wrote a great piece on Slate. How, uh, this could be one of the most important decisions with regard to the 2024 election, right? Because if the Supreme Court nukes content moderation, then you're going to be getting the craziest disinformation you can imagine at the top of every feed. Uh, your 12-year-old is going to start seeing like white supremacist propaganda for Trump instead of a 45-minute video of a train getting put together in Switzerland. Switzerland or whatever they like to watch. So I, I think that there are a lot of ramifications for the election. I think for that reason, we should all really hope that the court does something sensible here. Um, but I also, again, just don't think that fear of the worst possible outcome in this case should drive the court to issue a decision that's so sweeping and limitless that it prevents these websites from ever facing regulation. Because, look, you know, even when they try to do good content moderation, they fail a lot. Mark Joseph Stern, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Emily. 
Mark Joseph Stern is a senior writer at Slate. And that's it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell and Anna Phillips. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. And TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back Sunday with another episode. I'm Emily Peck, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you can catch me over on Slate Money every Saturday. Thanks for listening.